Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, how are you doing today? Particularly bullish on NFTs today. I don't know why, but I just feel that way. Yeah, me too. This was definitely a bullish episode. We kind of cover NFTs from soup to nuts, like starting with what they are and why they're valuable and like getting into the psyche of collectibles and why humanity has valued those for thousands of years. So what were what were some of your takeaways? Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway is like when we talk about Ethereum, we talk about DeFi, we talk about all these crazy new things that we are building. It's easy to forget that we are often rebuilding things that have come before us, right? Like we are not recreating finance. We are just we we are just taking the old paradigms, the old primitives and redeploying them on Ethereum. And NFTs, the conversation around NFTs is very salient around this. Like humans have been collecting NFTs for as old as time, right? We just didn't call them NFTs. We called them other things. So if you collected Pokemon cards when you were a kid, if you played Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, baseball cards, Beanie Babies. Coins. Stamps. Coins, stamps. Yeah, all, all this good stuff. Like the concept of scarce goods is written into our human DNA, right? Like we understand scarce goods. And I really, really liked the line from Andrew where he said like he thinks that the worlds of NFT as a val- as, as a market cap is going to be orders of magnitude larger than DeFi in the same sense that like property and items are way bigger than finance. Like the 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 total addressable market for just property is is massive, and so that's why Andrew's particularly bullish on this industry. Yeah, those guys are super bullish, and something about this feels a lot like DeFi. And I don't know, 2018, 2019, where like stuff is getting built, it's bubbling, it's below the surface, so it's still kind of a niche within a niche within a niche. Yet you see the 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 organic material here for something really incredible to be built. And you're not yet sure when this is going to bubble over and become massive. You know, for for DeFi in 2019, it took uh, a a year for things to start bubbling up and getting some mainstream attention. Uh, And I wonder if the same thing is going to happen with NFTs, whether we're a year away, whether we're two years away, whether we're longer. But certainly the gentlemen, the guests that we had on our show today are ultra bullish in this world and they eat, breathe, and live in it every single day. Also, what was cool, I think, is um, they, they really left the listener with with some action steps, some things that uh, you can do next to get a taste of the NFT world. Um, and it's it's far bigger than I thought. Like There are a lot of things that you can do today. It's primitive. It's kind of nascent. It's a little clunky in places, but you can see the potential there. As I'm looking towards the, the DeFi world and yield farming, I'm, I'm expecting that energy to kind of die off at some point, right? Like be it like two months from now or two years from now, like that energy isn't going to dissipate. So when I'm thinking of like a long-term bull market, I'm thinking about things that kind of pick up the slack, things that add energy when energy is needed, right? Like when, when the yield farming runs out of gas, what adds gas back into the fuel tank of the bull market? And the NFT phenomenon, thinks, I think that is like the next step, right? And the, the, we need to do, Ryan, another episode on NFTs because there's, it's such a rich world and we really only scratch the surface. Uh, one thing that I'm really particularly fascinated by is just the massive amounts of intermediaries that get cut out 
between an artist or a value producer and a value consumer, right? Like in the in the legacy world with uh, with music artists, there's like seven different intermediaries between the listener and the artist, right? And that ends up making the the listener experience. The listener can't express their value to their artist. Their artists can't receive the value being expressed by the listener because of all these intermediaries. And I think the NFT industry is something that can really just streamline the connection between value producer and value consumer without having a bunch of middlemen. Uh, we, we definitely talked about that at a high level in this episode, but I think it's definitely worth going into in, in future episodes. So here's the takeaway, guys. This is the frontier. Chris Brininski in our episode with him called the land of Ethereum infinite white space. And I think there is an infinite white space for the growth of NFTs here. Uh, and you know, with that, David, why don't we just get right into it? But first, we're going to talk about some of these fantastic Bankless sponsors that make the Bankless Nation possible. One of the tools I've started to use recently is Zapper. For those of you that were a part of the 2017 bull market, it was characterized by just opening up Blockfolio and refreshing it over and over and over again. And also, anytime you ever made a trade, you would have to go into Blockfolio and manually input that trade information to make sure that your portfolio that you think that you have matches what you actually have. With Zapper, you don't have to do any of that anymore because all you have to do with Zapper is input your Ethereum addresses and then Zapper will give you a really elegant report as to where all your money is. So there will never ever be any disconnect between the money that you think that you have and the money that Zapper reports to you. Zapper looks directly on chain and gives you a nice portfolio summary of all your assets and how many assets and your, all of your debt and all of your lending positions, all of your positions all at once. So there's no more editing your portfolio because Zapper just does it for you. One thing that I thought was really useful about Zappers was when I plugged my wallets in, I found that I had submitted liquidity to Uniswap forever ago, and without Zapper, I would have probably lost that forever because Zapper knows where your money is better than you do. It's also the gateway to investing your money into this ever-expanding list of available DeFi platforms like Curve, Balancer, Uniswap, Yearn. In the Bankless Nation, there is this growing number of money Legos and keeping track of them all is just super overwhelming, which is why you could just go to Zapper and Zapper will, will solve the problem of there just being too many money Legos to choose from. So check them out at zapper.fi, enter your Ethereum addresses and check out your portfolio and see if there's anything that you missed. Bankless Nation, do you want to go fully bankless, but in the real world? Monolith is the DeFi account that you need. It wraps your ETH address in a bankless Visa card and it does so much more. It closes the loop from fiat to DeFi. So you can onboard fiat to DAI on Monolith with zero fees. Then you can convert that DAI to ADAI, which is an interest bearing savings account. Again, zero fees. And then you can spend that interest in the real world on a Visa card. So you can finally buy your cup of coffee with interest earned in DeFi. Guys, this is magic. This is the closest thing to the Holy Grail crypto card and Monolith gives you all of it. You need to download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless Visa card. It's optimized for European listeners. They'll be coming to the US soon. And when you get that Visa card, the Monolith card, tweet about it when you do. I love seeing people unpackaging their beautiful bankless Visa cards. It makes me realize that the revolution is here. Search Monolith in the App Store. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Andrew and Jake.
All right, Bankless Nation, we are super excited to have our first two guest episode on the podcast. We're going to be talking about NFTs today. Are they the next big thing? Is this the thing that's going to happen after DeFi? Hopefully, we will find out with our next two guests. The first is Jake Berkman, who is the founder of CoinFund. He's also an engineer. He's a longtime crypto investor. We've got him to write bankless articles as well. So he's, he, you know, three things at the same time. And also Andrew Steinwald, who is the founder of the Sofermion Fund. He invests in the metaverse, which we'll be talking about today, what that is. He also writes one of the best newsletters I've found that covers the NFT space. It's called Zima Red. Welcome to the show, Jake and Andrew. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing great. So happy to be here. Doing great. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. Guys, are NFTs about to blow up? They're kind of blowing up already, right? So so you 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 know, we were talking a little bit before the recording about how DeFi is killing it. And recently Zapper published some of their uh, some of their like website statistics, right? About how many daily active users there are and how many monthly active users there are. And everyone kind of thought like, oh, you know, there's probably a few tens of thousands of people in De- DeFi, uh, but the month MAUs at Zapper were 300,000, which is surprisingly high. And the DAUs were something like 20,000. I think that's August numbers. I, I'm here to say that the numbers for NFTs are not far behind. So I wrote a blog post a while back that looked at the total number of unique addresses that used OpenSea. And it was April 2020. The stats were roughly 20,000 totally unique wallets in OpenSea. And OpenSea is the number one NFT exchange in the ecosystem right now. There are others. But um, so I looked at that. And I think that that's, you know, people that you trade NFTs, they have usually more than one wallet, just like how people in DeFi have more than one wallet. So, you, you know, at the maximum, I'd say we're around, let's say, 10,000 to 30,000 active participants in the NFT space right now. So, you know, there's a lot more space to grow, especially if we're looking at the DeFi numbers, which Jake just mentioned is 300,000. And we're, if we're looking at total active crypto wallets, which I checked up just because I was curious about that number. In 2019, I forget which month, but it said, I think it was 42 million total active crypto wallets. So the, the total you know, market growth potential here is absolutely massive. Yeah, David and I were talking, the reason we wanted to host this episode is honestly, NFTs feel somewhat like DeFi felt back in uh, a year ago. Right. So back in 2019, you know, around this time, DeFi, DeFi was kind of on the cusp. You could see a lot brewing. NFTs feel like that right now. I'm not sure whether they will uh, burst in the same way that DeFi has lately, but those two things are certainly uh, super interrelated. Um, but before we get too deep, I feel like we should just spend a minute to define NFTs. We're using this, like, you know, um, this acronym. Uh, NFTs, of course, stand for non-fungible tokens. But what what are NFTs? Maybe Jake, we could start with you. Well, <laughs> NFTs are non-fungible tokens. What that means is there's um, there's some assets. Mostly, we we see this in kind of currencies and stocks, right? Where each unit um, of the asset is exchangeable with any other unit of the asset. So if I have one ether, you have one ether. I say, you know. So if I send you one Ether and you send me one back, will you, is that a fair trade? Absolutely. Um, we're willing to do it. In non-fungible tokens, you have a plurality and diversity of different assets. 
and they're not all valued the same. So, for example, CryptoKitties, right? Some CryptoKitties are more rare, others are less rare, more common. Um, and so the rare ones are going to be worth more. Non-fungible tokens captures that idea, and I think, as we'll discuss, it extends um, it extends it to not just art, not just collectibles, not just CryptoKitties, but to a broad spectrum of, uh, of of different assets that could be understood that way. Yeah, I, I think Jake hit it perfectly well. I I, I like to describe non fungible tokens as unique digital assets. So unlike Bitcoin and US dollars that are totally interchangeable, my US dollar is the same as yours, and my Bitcoin is the same as yours. You know, it's worth the same. You, uh, NFTs they can be basically let, let's use an example from a video game. If I have an NFT sword that I won from de defeating some boss, and maybe it's called you know Flaming Sword Number One. Then you come along, you also defeat the same boss, and you get that sword, but you have flaming sword number two. So even though they might have the same stats, they are totally unique from each other. And in theory, the market should probably value mine slightly more because I was the first one to defeat the boss and I you know have the number one sword. And that's just an example from video games, but most NFTs that we see today are just completely uh, unique assets from uh, virtual worlds to collectibles to game assets and et cetera. So I think the average listener, even if they don't know like what an NFT is in the way that we're talking about it, they are still familiar with the concept of an NFT. An NFT is just kind of like in the DeFi world, we like to put in confusing lingo and NFT is definitely one of those things. But people should, should really know what these things are. Like Andrew, you gave this great explanation of like a it's a sword that you found in a game. It's some, some loot that you found in your favorite video game. But in the real life, there there's more to it than that. Like art, I think, and, you know, Renaissance paintings and marble sculptures, things that, you know, there are only one of, and that one thing has value. Uh, this, this is something that has been as, as is, this is something that is as old as time. Uh, can you guys go into kind of the, the, the relationship that humanity has with what we now are calling mm, NFTs? Super interesting. Yeah. So I guess, uh, hmm. yeah. So, you know, th throughout forever, People are always trying to verify the authenticity of certain goods, right? And that's just been the case since probably the dawn of man. And what, what we're seeing with NFTs that are attached to real world items today is usually they're, they're sold as certificates of authenticity. So I can buy a physical piece of art and then attach to that. Maybe they'll, they'll attach some sort of uh, NFT or you know send me the token. So it's kind of a, a certificate. And I, I think that there's a ton of use cases that will spawn. And there are already some today that basically sell these NFTs, and then on the background, they're redeemable for the actual physical good. So what we see on OpenSea, there's a company called, I think it's like WIV, like WIV or something, and they're selling cases of, of wine from France, I believe, and you're able to actually purchase these cases as NFTs, and I believe you're able to redeem uh, the actual NFT for the actual wine. Of course, you have to pay shipping and whatnot, so it's you know, it kind of you run into the same issues with, with uh traditional uh, the traditional inefficiencies of physical goods but right now the use cases that are really exciting in my mind are the kind of these completely digitally native things but we're definitely seeing uh, a huge use case and what will be a huge use case is um, the more traditional physical goods with nft certificate certificates of authenticity um, and that can be anywhere from like rare watches to wine as mentioned or rare cars and all sorts like the entire collectibles market is becoming digitized which will unlock just so much value and be able to uh, make people feel a lot safer transacting with these items. It's kind of weird that the humans have always collected things like this. So I had a I had a neighbor growing up who used to collect um, cars, like classic cars. 
And when you think of the value of a classic car, it's it's not valuable for its utility function. It's not valuable because, you know, my neighbor could use it to go from point A to point B on his commute to work. In fact, he like left his cars in his garage and never drove the things. But they had some collectible type of value. Like what is that? Is that just something inherent in uh in humanity that we um we treat scarce things that are unique uh that have some kind of nostalgic value as as valuable. Like we do this all the time in the physical world, and we're just kind of porting that same thing into the digitally scarce world. That's what NFTs are, right? Jake, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I do. Um, I, I think if you kind of dig down into the human psyche, it kind of, you know, I, I think it kind of boils down to two things. It's like value and ownership. There's this great talk that that has influenced me over the years so much from Andreas Antonopoulos. I think it's called The Future of Bitcoin, and I think it's from 2015. And somewhere in that in that talk, he mentions, you know, like if you perform an experiment where you put some some children on a deserted island, they'll naturally develop ways of transferring value to each other. They'll start collecting shells. They'll start start collecting pretty rocks and flowers. And they'll basically start using those things as a currency. So, in, in, you know, I totally agree. I think like there's some aspect of, you know, embedded in, in people that want to encapsulate the idea of value um, in, in an asset form. And then the idea of ownership, I think, extends that, right? There's something also innate in us that, you know, that likes property, that likes the idea of being the sole owner of a thing. Um, and on the internet, like this is a view that I kind of have come around to lately. Um, I heard Adam B. Levine talk about it on, on one of these calls that, that I was on recently, but, but he was basically saying like, if you think about, um, digital content on the internet, um, you know, one view is that, is that we don't really own too much of it, right? Like we, we maybe own the content that we create. But we we certainly don't own the content that we consume, right? So if you're um, borrowing an ebook from <clears throat> from Amazon or you're watching a movie on Netflix, you don't actually like own the thing. You kind of own the license to to view the thing for a little bit uh, of time. And <clears throat> what NFTs allow you to do is just like all you know blockchains enable this like strong personal ownership of assets, NFTs allow you to create strong personal ownership of, of digital content. And I think that's like a really, really interesting view. And the reason why I think that is because as an investor, I'm looking for markets that are high growth. And what I'm observing about this market of ownership is that it's like very liquid, right? It's not, it's not out there. There's not a lot of secondary markets for, for digital content. And that's because primarily the ownership of these things is not owned uh, in actuality, kind of by the by by most people. And so what happens is when you when you take NFTs, which are digital assets that enjoy the benefit of all the advances we've made in blockchain, like DEXs and liquidity and trading, and you sort of start to unlock this asset class of digital assets, you create a bunch of value and unlock a bunch of value. That before was completely um, internalized, right? 
And so it spills out onto the markets. I sort of share that take, right? So if uh, this is sort of what I've kind of concluded after being in this space, that the thing that humanity unlocked with the birth of crypto in 2009 with, with Bitcoin first is digital scarcity. Like if I, if I could kind of sum it up, right? So the internet gave us digital communication, but what crypto gives us is the ability to have scarcity on the internet, to, to, to create, inject scarcity into our digital goods. And that's closely, as he said, associated with uh, ownership and, and property rights, and they're all kind of interrelated. But before 2009, we didn't even have the ability to have a digitally scarce good. Every good could be copy and pasted. But through this mix of cryptography and economic incentives, humanity has essentially unlocked digital scarcity. Everything's kind of falling out from that. Like there's this game, uh, Civilization. I don't know if you, I used to play it as a kid, right? So you kind of level up your civilization and know that the civilization has discovered writing, the civilization has discovered mathematics and now physics and, you know, now nuclear weapons. Oh, Gandhi's going to war with your civilization, right? Like that's how the game's played. I really feel like humanity has just unlocked digital scarcity and all of these things like NFTs are just falling out of that. What do you think of that take, Jake? Is that the big discovery for crypto? When I started thinking about NFTs, I actually started at the um, you know, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, because I was trying to understand how um, digital art sort of meshes with, uh, with this idea of digital scarcity. And what I noticed was that, you know, if you talk about physical art, like if you talk about the Mona Lisa, it's a very, uh, it, it's a very solved problem to answer the question, like where this art is. I know exactly where the Mona, uh, where the Mona Lisa lives, right? It, le- it lives in the Louvre. Um, on the other hand, when you start to think about digital art, this is a, you you start to fall down this like philosophic rabbit hole where you kind of don't know where it is. Like, is it in the creator's like Photoshop? Like, is it in the email where he sent it to the gallery? Is it in the inbox of the gallery? And what you realize is that digital art is, it doesn't have like a place where it lives. It's just sort of like a concept that kind of like lives in our minds. And then it has like different, um, you know, actualizations of that concept, which might be like a copy of it on my computer or phone or something. And what actually blockchain technology and digital scarcity do for, for art philosophically, for digital art and ephemeral art, is they find a place for it. And that place is on the blockchain. <laughs> you, you know, like exactly where, where it is, like, and who owns it. And so that's kind of like where I started um, in thinking about it. And then as we develop the idea of of digital scarcity, um, you kind of realize that that strong uh, ownership of it also enables you to, you know, be entitled to the rights that owners are entitled to. And these rights might be the right to hold, the right to sell, the right to lend, the right to collect a royalty stream uh, on on this work. Uh, the the movie rights to this work and so on and so forth and that's where the view of uh, what we call liquid IP or liquid intellectual property kind of comes from. One of the favorite ways that I've had Bitcoin described to me is that Bitcoin is this uh, ledger of property rights for these 21 million units, right? And you know the people can perceive these units to be whatever they want them to be, 
But the property rights ledger of Bitcoin itself is so incredibly valuable that these 21 million slots, right? These 21 million like parking spaces or just like units are so incredibly valuable because of the value of the property rights system that is Bitcoin that that turns into like BTC as money, right? And what Ethereum has done is it has generalized this concept of like digital scarcity. And it's it's actually it, it, a funny little statement that I that I like to to say in my head is that, you know, B Ethereum has made uh, scarcity abundant, right? And so while Bitcoin is this this one like monolithic property rights system, Ethereum is this property rights platform, right? A platform for property rights. And what NFTs are is this, uh, you know, this very specific instantiations of one very specific form of property, right? And ever since, you know, ever since we human, humans moved out of like hunter-gatherer societies and into like settled lands where capital and property therefore was established, we have been like property-owning beings, right? Like our, the one of the ways that we perceive and, and share and grow wealth is through property, right? And so I'm just particularly bullish on like Ethereum just as a generalized property rights management platform. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love that Ethereum as a property rights platform. And, you, you know, my whole thesis is that non-fungible tokens enable a true metaverse to form because they give us property rights, right? Whereas before, as you mentioned, like on, in the digital world, we had zero property rights and you could copy and paste and, you know, print unlimited things. And, you know, property rights are the basis of all basically successful economic systems that, that we've that we've kind of seen today. And um, I, I, and also going back, if you kind of think about, you mentioned the hunter-gatherer days, like even back then people were collecting shells and kind of collecting stuff and um, taking ownership of these kind of goods. And it's really interesting to see that maybe we have some like innate human, you know, piece of us that likes to collect and likes to have property rights over, over certain like items. And so I think that Ethereum as a property rights platform is just, enabling the entire virtual world to have property rights. And uh, th that is going to open up the door to our, it's, you know, people call it a mirror world or a metaverse where, whereas before we could, you know, we could build whatever you want in, in the virtual, but you couldn't actually own anything. Now we can transfer our entire society that we've built in the physical realm and port that into a digital. And that is going to create an entire, you know, society that's completely uh, virtual. You know, it's called the metaverse, but yeah, that, that's, that's why I'm, I'm so excited about this. And, I think you hit it spot on with Ethereum being the, the platform to do all that. What do you mean? I've heard you say this before, Andrew, the metaverse, right? So is the metaverse basically a virtual world um, like with property rights or is it describing crypto? How? What, what is the metaverse in your mind? What, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, so I like to, to, to say that the metaverse is just a virtual environment that people live, work, and play in. So, you know, it, it can be any sort of... Uh, can be on a computer, it can be in a VR headset, it can be, you know, I, I guess Zoom is some very, very simple form of the metaverse, you know, obviously, uh, for a true metaverse, you want it to be way more uh, immersive. And also you want to have property rights in there. But this is like Ready Player One, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that there is no, there is no one singular platform that's going to be the metaverse, it's going to be kind of like the internet where you, you don't say like, oh, Google is the internet, or Facebook is the internet, it's just kind of all these things together create the internet. And it, it's kind of my opinion that you can't have a metaverse without something like Ethereum for property rights, because uh, you know, if let's say Facebook made a really great virtual environment where people could actually earn money and stuff like that, well, at any time Facebook could delete your account and delete all your items, or even Epic Games, who are very you know kind of pro user and 
kind of pro, uh, you know, they want people to, you know, ha have more freedom, even if they create a metaverse and it enabled a lot of this, it still wouldn't be real unless the users actually had true property rights where Epic Games, no matter what, could not delete your stuff. Because if they can, then it's not, it's kind of like living in, I don't know, like the Soviet Union back in the day where, you know, you couldn't really, uh, I, I don't think you could have too much, too many pro actual property and um, your, your options for business and whatnot were, were very, very limited. So that's why people would want to move to America or, or some other country with stronger property rights so they can, you know, build a business and thrive. And I kind of see that with um, any, any virtual world or platform that utilizes Ethereum or other, you know, uh, other technologies that enable digital property rights, that's when you start to get the first inklings of a metaverse. All right. So when you watch something like Ready Player One and you're seeing like, um, you know, the avatars run around, they're collecting coins and they're grabbing items and they're, you know, getting things that have value. And they have an inventory. Yeah, they have an inventory. You're saying all of that is basically registered on some sort of crypto economic blockchain system like Ethereum. Yeah. And I would say I'm actually pretty blockchain agnostic, which is funny to say. I mean, right now, Ethereum clearly gives the, the biggest advantage in terms of property rights and real property rights. I don't really think, you know, platforms like, um, you know, I don't want to cause controversy, but, you know, there's other chains out there that don't provide the same guarantees that Ethereum does. I mean, obviously there's, there's issues with Ethereum scalability and whatnot, but I'm, I'm confident those will be solved, but you really have to, uh, have some system, some blockchain based system or distributed ledger system that enables these rights. So it doesn't matter what the chain is that you're using. What matters is that these, these property rights are guaranteed by the network and that they enable this kind of metaverse to form. Well, we're okay with a little bit of controversy, right, David? So, um, like something Only like Tron, right? With like so, or something like uh, EOS, with maybe you know twenty-one uh, block producers who can censor your transaction. What you're kind of saying is that's a less uh, valuable property rights system because it's it's much more centralized, much more subject to some third-party control than something like the ideal state of Ethereum is. Is is that kind of the case? So, like. We, we have to have a credibly neutral property rights system, whether that's Ethereum or something else. That's what you're more bullish on. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, you know, um, for me, it doesn't, I'm totally blockchain agnostic as long as you have true property rights, because my, my goal is the metaverse, right? So however we get there, it doesn't matter. I just want to be certain that we have true property rights. And right now, Ethereum is by far the, the, the leader in that. And yeah, I, I think that there are some issues with, you know, things like EOS. I Just personally, I think that there's some, uh, issues with having only 21 because in theory there could be some group of people that kind of take control of that and then your your property rights are, are have, get you know th those get diminished and uh, so that would hurt kind of the, the metaverse thesis so yeah in, in my opinion ethereum is by far the, the best uh, option today so there seems to be a lot of excitement around nfts right now like in the last few weeks or, or months or so what what is generating all of that hype? Like, what are the platforms that people are excited about that people are paying attention to right now? I'm super excited about Rarible. Um, Rarible has done some really interesting work in the space lately and last couple of months. This is a team that, that I've been working with um, all year. And this is a project that um, has, has just demonstrated that having crypto native uh, models for ownership and property rights, if you will, guys, um, you know, and also a token model can be an incredibly powerful way, um, you know, of, of bootstrapping a marketplace. And, and basically what happened is that at the, at the beginning of July, uh, Rarible um, announced that they would be launching Rary token. 
and this token would be airdropped uh, to users of NFT. So if you have a Ethereum wallet that has bought or sold an NFT in the past, you can go on rarible.com um, and there's a little section in the top bar where you could see if you're actually el- eligible for, for Rary. Um, they also implemented a volume mining program, a marketplace liquidity mining program, which means that if you are a verified creator on Rarible, or if you're a buyer of assets on Rarible, you'll actually be rewarded Raricoin um, on a weekly basis. And, and this is shown to be very powerful. I like to say that you can buy people's attention, but it's very hard to buy people's loyalty. But the way that you do the latter is you you give them equity, right? You 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 make them a partial owner um, of the platform that they're using, and this is the core value proposition, uh, I think, of Rarible as they head down their decentralization roadmap. And what we've seen is the success of Rary has been um, has been extreme. It, they it, just in the last week or so, um, you know, they really captured a lot of the imagination of crypto artists and a lot of them just moved to rare uh, rareable and started minting there um on-chain volume is up dramatically um and it really feels like uh governance tokens for nft marketplaces is now sort of par for the course um in that space it's it's really so something like rareable is really building on this concept that we've been talking about a lot on bankless in the DeFi space of of like yield farming right so is, is it uh what I guess money Legos from DeFi is Rarible really leveraging to uh, to create the success you mentioned? Well, I, I'd say the the liquidity mining program um, gets transferred from from the DeFi context into the marketplace context, um, and and it's a little bit of a it's a challenging problem, right? Because um, you know, in, in sort of in DeFi, what you do is you you kind of contribute capital. And in return for your capital, you're able to earn an APY. So you're taking some smart contract risk. You're taking some market risk. Um, you know, you're taking some risk uh, of the volatility of the asset that you're earning. And when you go into the marketplace context, it's a it's a similar idea. And, and the the abstract idea is, you know, if you if you're an active participant on the network, you earn rewards. But even more than that, you earn ownership of the network. Um, but the activity that you do in order to to earn that uh, to reward and ownership is a little bit different. And that activity is basically transacting uh, on the platform. So I would say what Rarible has done so far is they've sort of repurposed a little bit um, kind of the liquidity mining programs of DeFi into uh, these marketplace mining programs. And there's actually a few projects, not just Rarible, but a few marketplace projects in, uh, out there today, they're, they're doing it. One other example is uh, what, what Zapper is building. Um, but what we have seen is that these programs make a profound impact on these marketplaces who are bootstrapping. We've seen it in DeFi as balancer investors, um, and now we're seeing it in NFTs uh, as the Rarible marketplace bootstraps. So something like Rarible, would that have been possible? So you, you mentioned yield farming, right? And that's kind of a, just that's just like three months old-ish in DeFi, although you could argue Synthetics kind of, in, in you know, pioneered it in DeFi. Um, but that's kind of a newer trend. But would something like Rarible be possible without 
other DeFi components, like say a decentralized exchange protocol like Uniswap, or is it really um, building on top of some of those other pieces in DeFi? It's absolutely building on top. Um, so what we've seen is, you know, if you rewind like six, 12 months ago, you know, the, the profile of your average uh, token project that was coming to market was something like this. Oh, I have to wait to get listed on an exchange. Um, it might take me six months to do that. It might take me a year to do that. I might have to pay a million dollars, you know, in China to get listed, right? Um, and then after I get listed, there's no guarantee that I will have great liquidity. Um, there's no guarantee. I might have to hire market makers. I might have to wait for my market to form for another six months, another year. And really the onus of getting a liquid token out there historically in blockchain has been really high, even though the quote unquote time to liquidity enabled by blockchain has been really low. Now, what we've seen this year is just the explosion of decentralized exchange. And, you know, I've said this on a few programs recently, but if you look at the daily volume of kind of crypto broadly, it's right now it's something like 100 to 130 billion dollars a day. And, and if you look at the kind of the major DEXs and the volume that they're doing, they're doing something like 500 million to a billion dollars a day. And so really, we're just just under like 1% of utilization of, uh, of the addressable volume in blockchain. But even with that, the time to major liquidity has basically gone to zero. If you have great incentives in your project, if you have, um, you know, if you have a popular brand, then we have seen this in the last months that that just tokens come out and they have um, you know very very interesting and high levels of liquidity almost straight away. In Rarible's case, was immediately after the rare, uh, airdrop, they got to something like three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand of daily liquidity, and this was just on Balancer and just on Uniswap. And as um, as the airdrop kind of proliferated to more people, and as more people were uh, marketplace mining, you know, the, the asset. Um, and as the audience of Rary Token increased, they got up to like $6 million of, of daily liquidity. Uh, and I haven't checked recently, but we can, we can pull it up. It looks like, yeah, just about $2 million, $2 million of, uh, of liquidity in the last 24 hours. But we also have some pretty high fees on chain these days. Andrew, where are you seeing energy in the NFT space? Yeah, I, I think uh, Jake hit it perfectly right there when, when he was talking about Rarible releasing their governance token. And, it, you know, everything, all this really started with Compound launching their comp token. And then DeFi just went absolutely crazy. And, you know, myself looking from the NFT space, I was like, damn, you know, I, I wish I could get, you know, learn, learn more and be a part of it. And, you know, thankfully, I, I do listen to you guys. And so I, I understood like the, the basics, but I wasn't really getting deeply involved. But now what we're seeing is all these teams from the NFT space, that, you know, especially Rarible being the first one, they're all now kind of looking at these different token models and what they can do to kind of bootstrap liquidity and bootstrap activity and, and whatnot. And what I think is really cool about governance tokens, particularly in, in kind of games and virtual worlds, is that I remember growing up, people would always say like, oh man, I wish I could, uh, I wish I could add this feature to this video game, or I wish I could like, you know, implement this thing in this game or, or whatnot. And what we're seeing... What I think is going to come out soon is that people will be launching these governance tokens for virtual worlds or games, and the, the users themselves will, as Jake mentioned before, have skin in the game, so they'll feel really, really entrenched with that project. Plus, they'll also have input on the direction of the platform, which that's that's never really been a thing before. 
And I think that's that's incredible because you have this fun experience. You know, you're you're maybe building something in this virtual world and you're really enjoying it. And but there's this one feature you really want to be implemented. Well, you can go get you know all your buddies together and talk to them about it and go vote on chain and then kind of kind of push that forward. So I really think we're going to see a massive explosion of different NFT projects taking what the kind of the best aspects of DeFi and then launching that within the NFT ecosystem. You guys pay attention to the NFT world, perhaps more more than anyone. And there are some really exciting, really uh, very real platforms like Rarible that that are out right now. But what is on the horizon that also excites you guys? Like what what is coming What that we know is in the pipeline that uh, you guys are really particularly excited about? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so so if you if you kind of check out our thesis that we published on NFTs, it's called all digital content is going on chain. And what we're really trying to make the point there is um, that it's not just art, it's not just collectibles, but you know we can extend to a really broad spectrum of things. And so the question becomes like, well, what's the next thing? And we're starting to get hints that, um, you know, that, that on NFT platforms today, there's at least one, I believe it's Mint-based, where you can actually create a music NFT. And there are some artists who, uh, like Connie Digital, who, who I love, um, he's, he's been doing kind of NFT digital art, but recently he's also been publishing music in the form of NFTs. So you get the sense that, um, you know, we started kind of at collectibles, then we went to art. Now we're going to music. Um, and there might be other forms of creative expression that, you know, that can be tokenized this way. So, um, Foundation comes to mind, right? Where uh, where artists are able to uh, tokenize some of their physical uh, goods and uh, in the form of digital assets and, and sell it that way. Can you talk more about Foundation? Because I think that's super super interesting, right? And um, you know, another related uh, project we've talked about on Bankless is, is Zora. Um, we've had some uh, artists like releasing NFTs on top of those things, but uh, many times these are redeemable for physical goods in some cases. But but just talk about what Foundation, what Zora actually is for us, if you will, Jake. I, you know, I'm, I'm not an investor in, in, in any of those companies that you mentioned. I just kind of been following them from a distance, but it does seem like, um, it, it, you know, if what Foundation is trying to do, you know, they're on their front page, they say, this is culture's stock exchange. And it's really like going back to that fundamental idea that, um, you know, the digital assets um, should be out there in the world as liquid, freely transferable, freely tradable assets. And what kind of assets are we talking about? Um, creators have uploaded uh, some of their graphic design. Uh, they There was a there was actually a recording artist who, who I think he dropped either a track or an album, um, you know, in this way. And again, like my my broader thesis is that all digital content that you kind of come in, in contact with on the internet, it you know will eventually be tokenized in this way. And there's some like really obvious kinds of content, right? There's there's the art, there's music, but there's also the the not so obvious kinds that we probably didn't even think about tokenizing yet. And, and I think of things like tweets, right? You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense to tokenize tweets yet because twi- Twitter is a centralized platform, but you can imagine that in the future, um, 
social media is going to decentralize quite a bit, right? And in that case, the users will own their content. They'll own their posts. They'll own their, their Insta stories. They'll own their tweets. And there are certain tweets that are culturally relevant, right? Like you remember the Elon Musk's tweet about taking Tesla private, funding secured? Um, it would be a curious exercise to try to see how much a collector would maybe pay to own that kind of cultural content. So, so Jake, here, here's where I, I got to ask a question because some people are skeptical of this sort of thing when it turns into digital, right? Because like the question I, I can, I can tell is in a lot of listeners mind when they hear you describe something like that, like owning Elon Musk's uh, famous uh, tweet is what would an owner actually own? Right. So like anybody who has access to Twitter can take a screenshot of that tweet. Or if it's something like digital art, anybody can take a screenshot of that digital art, transfer it anywhere, print it out if they want. Right. There might be some copyright infringement involved in that. But like, I, I guess what I, the, the heart of what I'm asking is if you were to own something like a tweet or digital art, what do you actually own? You own the uh if you ask me, you own the, the intellectual property rights to that content. But does it, doesn't the tweeter own that tweet in that same way? I believe so. And so he, he is the tweeter is free to sell it. Is that's how it, that's the genesis of it. Like if I'm a, there, there's no, there's no um, abstract difference between writing a tweet or writing a 40 page essay. If I write a 40 page essay uh, and it's my own work, and it's my research, and somebody wants to reprint it, they must pay me money, right? Like, I own the intellectual property to that essay. Um, a tweet is sort of edging toward the kind of silly side of the spectrum a little bit because a tweet is only 280 characters long, but there's no difference between me writing an essay or me writing original content in a tweet. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, I th so I agree. But so one thing that we've done is something I, I think that's subtle, but I hope Bankless listeners uh, paid attention to because uh, when, when we start to use words like intellectual property, we're talking about settlement that happens at in a, in a different place, right? So the great thing about uh, crypto and blockchain is a settlement of a transfer of something like Bitcoin or a transfer of ETH happens purely on chain. So it doesn't really like you actually own the ETH that I send you, Jake, if I send you some ETH, right? Um, you, you don't require the legal system of a nation state in order to verify that I have sent you ETH or appeal to a nation state. You, you actually own it. Your private keys have access to that ETH. What's different about the intellectual property case that you just made is that kind of appeals to the legal letter. Uh, the legal layer outside of the, uh, the the blockchain. So it's not purely settlement. Like you just transfer some representation of a legal right and the legal right still settles in meat space. Is that is that a difference here though? Like, because that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, are we just actually talking about IOU type tokens for legal obligations? If so, that's interesting, but maybe not quite as interesting as actually owning, you know, the thing, the bearer asset. The, the answer to that is complicated. So um, I would say that you we could get, so the high levels, we could get to a place where we can enforce or potentially get to a place where we can enforce those kinds of rights on chain. And so you will have like the strength of guarantee that you will have in this context of intellectual property will be quite similar to the strength of guarantee that you will have 
in, you know, bearer asset level ownership of something. So let me just say that. I don't think we're there yet. Um, as we get there, I think that we will sort of naturally engage uh, meet space legal systems. Like it's happening already. If you guys know the Lao, right, those guys have done a great job of marrying a Delaware corporation together with a decentralized autonomous organization for the purposes of starting a venture fund. Um, and, and there's also like a really interesting opportunity here to take a look at what Aragon's been doing um, and maybe integrating some sort of off-chain agreements, but in a way that is enforceable on-chain. So Aragon is a project that, you know, if anyone doesn't know, it's, it's sort of um, getting at the fact that we do a lot of global commerce, but we do not have a global jurisdiction on the internet to settle disputes. And using autonomous organizations and, and, and blockchain technologies, what we can actually do is we can have companies interact on chain. And when there's a dispute, it can actually go to an on-chain court. That exists today. It's called Aragon Court. And so I would say like in the shortest term, right, I think people in the NFT space will be engaging meat space um, kind of property rights and intellectual property law in various jurisdictions. And there's a lot of precedent for that now, um, you know, in blockchain and, and, and sort of beyond. We will then go to, uh, or at least try to go to a sort of more broad kind of global jurisdiction that is on chain. And, you know, that's very speculative. I don't know if it will happen. I, I hope it does. I think it would be like a completely fascinating experiment. I think it would make global commerce so much more efficient. Um, and we could talk a lot about that. But but it, but eventually, I do think you get to an enforcement of guarantees that is uh, just as on chain as you have with with Ethereum ownership. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'd love to take a crack at trying to kind of talk about how you know just screenshotting something, and you know, because a lot of my buddies they say, oh well, I'll just screenshot that thing, and therefore you know it should be worth so much, so you know, so and so. Because just this uh, just last night, one piece of crypto art just set the record. It was sold for one hundred and one thousand dollars. And I was telling my buddy, who's not really that into crypto, and he was like, oh, well, dude, I'm going to screenshot that, and then you know, I'm going to sell it. And and I go, Andrew, well, what is it? What was that piece of art? It was Matt Cain's piece. It's called um, uh, something about time. I forget the actual title, but uh, Matt Cain was the artist. He's an incredible crypto artist, and he sold it on the platform Async Art, and he sold it to the collector Token Angels, who I'm, I'm also very good friends with. Wow. So I'm really, really happy about that for, for all parties involved, but... Um, and and yeah, so what can that person do with it at, at that point? They can display it. They they own it. I guess it's um, certified on the blockchain. Maybe you're getting to that. Yeah. So tell 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 me about your friend's skepticism because you know I'm I'm curious too. Yeah. So so you know everyone always says okay you can screenshot it therefore you know how, is it worth anything if I can just screenshot it therefore I you know I own it right and it's kind of like you know this is not the best kind of argument but I, I kind of look at okay the Mona Lisa as Jake mentioned earlier like. You know, that is the one Mona Lisa someone own, you know, I don't know actually who owns that, but that is the one I could have a Mona Lisa exact copy hanging in my, in my uh, family room, but no one's going to really, it's not that important. It's not that cool. Right. Cause people are like, well, that's not the real one. Right. And you know, if you look at Sotheby's, cause I was doing research on this, I was like, okay, why is crypto art so exciting? And why, why is not just screenshotting it actually, you know, do anything, but Sotheby's, they have 10 kind of factors that go through what gives art value. And three of the things that really stuck out to me were authenticity so you know determine whether or not this this piece of art is fake uh, rarity 
which is, you know, that's self-explanatory, and provenance, which is the historical ownership record of, of that item. So if, if when you look at those three factors, authenticity, rarity, provenance, and you, you, you look at something like a blockchain, it is like the absolute best thing ever for, for uh, items being, being kind of traded on that. It's like a whole network that, that has built in authenticity. You can tell exactly whether or not, you know, if it's fake, if it comes from the correct contract. The rarity, you can look on chain and see exactly how many copies there are. Maybe it's one of one. Maybe there's a couple of them. Maybe there's prints. And, and then the provenance, I can see, oh my gosh, you know, Vitalik, he used to own this NFT and now I own it. And, you know, it's worth so much more because Vitalik owned it, blah, blah, blah. So I think what gives stuff value is very different from, uh, the, the factors in that are different from, okay, I can just screenshot it and hold it, you know, save it as a file on my computer. Sure, you can do that, but it doesn't mean it's valuable. And so I think there's a very direct correlation between that. And I think blockchain solves those key aspects of what drives value so perfectly. One thing that kind of strikes me as you're saying that, Andrew, is like, it could be the case that like older generations just never get this, right? So I I don't think my grandmother, for instance, or maybe even my parents will ever understand why that piece of art you just mentioned sold for under over $100,000, right? Digital art. I don't think they'll ever understand that. But like they understand why the Mona Lisa has value because they, they grew up with you know that being sort of the the cultural expression of of value do do you think it's the case that it's going to take younger generations possibly growing up with this and and kind of a sweeping societal movement for us to start to see authenticity and provenance and rarity in digital goods that are registered in the blockchain like it i i just something about it it doesn't feel like it's going to happen necessarily for older generations but maybe like a, a gen z is just going to grow up and it's going to feel supernatural. What's your take there? No, you have a great point right there. I, when I speak to my mother about, you know, Bitcoin and NFTs and stuff like that, she's, you know, she's like, oh, very cute. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I, I have a little brother, a little sister. I think they're, you know, what, 16 and 20 or, you know, around those ages. I should probably know more. But um, yeah, I, I talk to them about this NFTs and crypto and stuff. And for them, it's totally natural. They're like, oh, of course, you know, that thing exists. Like, you know, why would it not? So I, there definitely is a generational gap. But if you look at just the progress that we've made with Bitcoin in the past, you know, what, what is it, 11 years now, um, that, that, is, that is incredible because back in 2009, 2010, no one really, or very, very, very few people thought, okay, you can have a totally native, uh, a digitally native asset that exists, you know, within the internet somehow, uh, how can that have value? And, and now fast forward, you know, 10 years, whatever, um, people across the whole world think, think that, you know, this, this thing is highly valuable, right? Being Bitcoin. And so... I think it is going to take a lot, a lot, a lot of time. It's going to take longer than you know I would prefer, but that things just kind of happen like that. There's a lot of mental barriers that people have to get over. But once they do, and once they see the activity, and once they hear things like a hundred thousand dollars for this digital art, people get really in- interested, and that interest drives more people into the ecosystem. So it's just kind of like it's going to take time for sure. But uh, I think that the activity that we're going to see is going to really you know make the space uh, much more approachable in, in the future. So one of the big value propositions of, of meat spate NFT, which we can call art, right? And, and there's a big dividing line between like uh, legacy NFTs, which like, is like, you know, paintings, uh, statues, uh, you know, some, 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 some sort of art, some like rare kind of clothing, uh, you know, the Supreme, bland, the, the Supreme brand has really leveraged this. And so they're, they're, the, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, the, the concept of NFTs is as as old as time. It's just we call them different things. But digital NFTs, um, I, I'm still going to like rehash this skepticism because I, I want to uh, just double down on this a little bit. When you purchase 
art, right? Like I have a painting in my room, right? And it's in my room and no one else can can see it, right? I'm the only one who can look at that painting and enjoy it, right? That's And it, it is, it's mine because I own it. And that same sort of art doesn't have that same sort of like exclusivity as a, something online, right? And so that's why I think people are going and taking a screenshot or if in the case of like some of the gifts that are available on Rarible, some really cool gifts that artists have put like a ton of, of time and, and labor and work into. The owner doesn't really able, isn't really able to have more like exclusive enjoyment over these things than anyone who's just visiting the website, right? And so uh, while we can say that the value proposition comes from the intellectual property, that seems more to maybe closer to kind of something of like a, a cop out, uh, cop out um, uh, rationale, at least in comparison yeah. to what we are used yeah, to I, with, I, with legacy art. No, oh, no, sorry, sorry. Andy, I, either of you two want to rebuttal that? Okay, thanks. Um, so, just uh, I would say like move the mental model to recording artists, right? So if you take if you think about um, Taylor Swift. And if you think about how popular she is, and if you think about how she's been one of the recording artists who has really stood up for artists' intellectual property rights, what does that actually mean financially? Well, it means that um, Taylor Swift owns the royalty streams to her music. And what she would be able to do in the future with blockchain technology and NFTs is essentially take an album. Uh, I think her recent one is Folklore. I know my, girl, my girlfriend's a huge fan. Um, and basically tokenize each song and also therefore tokenize the royalty stream to each song. So you can imagine like whenever a song of Taylor Swift plays on the radio somewhere, um, your NFT position in that song accrues, uh, kind of a instant revenue. Right. And so once you frame the NFT in this financial way, um, then it becomes just a financial asset. It becomes something that you can value. It becomes something that has a measurable revenue stream. It becomes something that um, is susceptible to traditional uh, financial modeling. And, um, and then price discovery becomes like relatively easily. And so this goes to the point a little bit that there are actually, there's a gamut and a spectrum of different kinds of assets in NFT world. And when you're talking about something like a crypto kitty, I think like the value of that is very subjective. Or if you talk about art, right? Like different people might be willing to pay very different amounts of money for the same piece. It's a very subjectively valued, um, you know, kind of item. And then when you go to things that have cash flows, like um, like royalties on music and movies, um, or even the rights to kind of classical artworks, but whose business it is to be lent out to galleries in exchange for money, right? Like when you can frame those values um, as future cash flows, then I, I think the situation kind of dramatically changes and then the value of, the, of those assets. Yeah, you kind of touch upon if you own a piece of art and it's hanging in your house, you know, you kind of, you can enjoy that and no one can kind of, I mean, someone could, I guess, but people won't come in your house, take a picture of that and like hang it up in their, in their house. I mean, that'd be weird, but they could. So it's kind of like touching upon ex exclusivity. And I think there are a lot of people that are working on trying to figure out how we can make NFTs kind of more exclusive and, and kind of uh, not so people can't just go go and see it in your wallet and go into you know this area and see it and whatnot. 
And for example, there's people that are building um, it within virtual worlds. So like there's a virtual world called CryptoVoxels. There's you know, on a plot of land, you can have, uh, you can put up your art there or put up any NFT that you own on your, on your walls to kind of, you know, design your house and whatnot. And so I think that people are building these access tokens and only people with the access tokens can get access to that, to that parcel, can walk inside that piece of land. So I think um, in that sense, you can have this space that's only for you or whoever has this access token, and then you can put your art up there. And yeah, people can see, still see it in your wallet, but people are also working on solutions from, what, from my understanding, working on solutions to kind of hide the assets in your wallet. Um, so in that sense, it would be totally, you know, no one could see it. It's only you and it's very exclusive. Because a lot of this too is about uh, social social signaling, right? It's it's almost about like the trophy case we create, and I think that's what you're getting at, Andrew. It's like you know we're creating these uh, ways to display NFTs. They're not here yet, but like so part of the value, David, you were saying you you got was actually looking at the art piece, right? For a lot of collectibles, it's it's that personal enjoyment, but it's also like I'm wearing a Rolex, right? That means something that says something about me. Or I've like I'm in a in a music video and I've got the gold chain and I want you to see this collectible like on display uh, because it it says something about how important I am or like you know how much money I have or something like that is that kind of what you're saying Andrew that these like these cultural trophy cases almost for NFTs have to be built first before we start to see those sorts of social signal displays. Yeah, you know, it's it's tough to say. So basically, I, I'm a kind of a big believer that every, like the whole world runs off of social signaling. Like ev- everyone just kind of uh, throughout their lives just try to kind of social signal to each other and kind of uh, do that for this reason and that. I think it could be because of some tribal, you know, monkey stuff that we had from way back in the day, but I'm not quite sure. But I think um, if you read, so there's a guy named Eugene Way, and he wrote this blog post called Status as a Service, which basically talks about Humans have this innate desire to signal status. And right now, social media is the best method for people to signal status. Because they can post on Instagram, they can post on Facebook, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And people are kind of seeing someone's personality and how wealthy they are and how cool they are based off these pictures. And so NFTs, in my mind, take this to an extreme level because you can see exactly what someone owns. And that's like a a whole... Imagine if I could go into your house and kind of look at all your objects. Like It's a little creepy, but... Um, it's a whole nother way to signal status. And, and I, I, if you could, if you could see exactly when you bought something, so if you were early into some project or early into something, then you could show, Oh, I'm so cool. Cause I'm so early, or you could kind of show, Hey, I'm rich because I spent exactly, you know, a hundred thousand dollars on this, on this asset, on this date. Right. So you could show to everyone that how rich you are. So I think that NFTs are going to kind of evolve into this, um, social network type of deal because they're the most efficient means of signaling status. And at the end of the day, I think human nature is mostly derived off of status signaling. I know that's kind of kind of deep, kind of weird, but that, that's kind of how I feel. No, no, I, I absolutely love it. Uh, there's a there's a, a thesis that I, I, I just love to, to talk about uh, that's outside of crypto. It's, it's called the costly signaling theory. And it's, it's, a, it's a theory as to like how uh, mate selection and sexual reproduction in humans and all animals like kind of what it's based off of. And uh, people, it, the, the theory is that people will go to very far ends to signal that they have done something costly, right? And so like artwork in your home, 
that doesn't, you don't need artwork to live, right? Like that's not helping you get food on the table. And so what you are doing when you have a bunch of artwork in your home is you're signaling that you have excess resources and you can afford such things, right? You know, this is why peacocks have such gorgeous feathers, right? Like it's a massive signal that this peacock has the excess resources to be able to produce these things. Uh, for me, my, my personal costly signaling theory uh, hobby that I get into is plants, right? Like I have a ton of plants around my house and that's perhaps that's my way of signaling that I have resources to be able to maintain like a garden, right? Like a bunch of plants. And so I, I, I do agree, totally agree with you that humans love to find ways to signal that they have resources available to them. And I think NFT and perhaps NFT art is like the new digital medium for achieving this goal. Guys, Tinder is about to get really weird if everything is <laughs> Oh my God. Wow. So right, we're talking about- detour, but I love that subject. All right. But we were talking about like, so the metaverse of the future is going to have these influencers with like trophy cases of NFTs that they've purchased and that previous influencers have owned and that sort of thing, right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I mean, we're already seeing kind of the, the, the NFT whales in the ecosystem. They're, um, they're extremely popular. And, you know, there's a lot of creators. Uh, and that's something I would love to talk about is how NFTs are really helping creators. But, um, you know, these NFT whales, they come in, they purchase tons of NFTs, and everyone can see that. And it's very, very apparent. And, uh, and people, people kind of love that. And they hold these NFT whales in very high esteem. And I, I've noticed like a psychological difference between NFT whales and maybe this is personal, but NFT whales and kind of crypto whales. So no one really knows who crypto whales are, um, you know, because obviously with traditional crypto, you're you're dealing with an order book and not people. And NFTs, you're you're just dealing with people all day, right? Because you need to buy assets from an individual. And it's not just sold on some order book. And so one thing I've seen is that these NFT whales are are kind of becoming the influencers of the of the ecosystem because they're the ones spreading the money out, spreading the wealth out. People love them because they're buying their stuff and. Um, it just gets everyone really excited, and and yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I yeah, we're kind of seeing the dawn of, uh, of of crypto influencers now within the ecosystem, and I think that the the the, the people that are putting large amounts of capital down into the space are going to be um, kind of these weird new social media. Inf I, I don't like to use that term, but yeah, you're kind of right. Jake, earlier you talked about the possibility of, of tokenizing a, a song, right? And then turning that into cash flowing royal royalties, which is, uh, you know, evaluating that is something as, as old as finance itself, right? And so the, the bull case for that makes sense to me. Can we talk about the bull case for NFTs as it relates to creators? Like what, what can this do for the average artist, yeah. right? Like the the record the, the labeling industry uh, the the media industry the entertainment industry industry is just full of middlemen and rent seeking and and uh, perhaps even extortion. What can the N NFT industry do for artists? I, I, in my opinion, it is a hugely democratizing technology um, for both buyers and creators. Um, for buyers, I think um, let me cover that quickly. So so you know historically, like art has been you know like like traditional art has been used by sort of rich people as a, as a tax haven, right. Um, to store their, their wealth and stuff. Um, and what I think NFTs do is they open up a global marketplace for, for art starting with digital art, but I think it does kind of, um, come out from there into other forms of art, including physical art, and it lowers the price point of art. And so if, if someone who is a, um, you know, someone who is a retail buyer uh, who maybe didn't have an entry point into like quality, 
art in the past, you know, they, they might be able to do so in the space. But I think like more, more interestingly, it's on the creator side that the democratization is, is, um, is really apparent and really dramatic. And um, I think on the creator side, first and foremost, um, I think what we do is we open up this middle market of, of artists who really have never even imagined that they can use um, the internet as a, as a marketplace for their art in this way. So there's certainly people who are artists who put their, uh, their art online to showcase their talents. But most of the transactions that occur in art are not online. They're not, they're not transacted on in that way. And so what happens is the, when we create these marketplaces like Rarible and others, and we create like a lot of, we, we create them in a global way. What it does is it creates a lot of liquidity for artists to actually go take their talent and convert it into money. And what that does is, is it creates sustainable opportunities for people who want to be artists, who 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 have a desire to have this be like the primary activity, the primary work of their lives, to actually go and do that. And like one of my favorite examples is there's a there's a crypto artist named um, Yali Rodriguez. She, uh, to my understanding, is someone uh, I've never met her in real life. I just know her from Twitter, but but she comes from New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey as well, um, you know. And she basically was one of the first crypto artists to join an investment that um, that CoinFund made in an app called Additional. Additional is essentially, you know, a social media feed, kind of like an Instagram, um, but where you could take and upload um, kind of visual content or, or photographs or artworks, and then it would help you turn those into NFTs. And, and Yalitza just tweeted the other day, she said, um, oh, I remember kind of the first artwork that I sold uh, on Additional and I was actually the the, the buyer of, of that work. Now, since then, uh, Yelitsa's uh, you know she's she's made a ton of work, ton ton of crypto art. Um, she's been on a bunch of the platforms that are out there. Um, she sold a bunch of work, and my understanding is that she's now uh, essentially a full time crypto artist. And just like giving people the opportunity to do that is amazing. And I, and I think she said the other day that she's actually applying to like a digital art program at this point and, and making that official. So, so I think that creates incredible impact. And there's a totally untapped market. Like, like if you guys are like me, I like to use Instagram as a, basically as a, as a tool to browse art. And I often, you know, I'm browsing and I find really cool stuff and I'm like, I, I would just pay this person like, I would just tip them like $10 or $20 or something just for creating a piece of art, um, you know, that, that I really, that I really like, but I don't even have the opportunity to do that on Instagram. You absolutely have the opportunity to do that on platforms um, that are, that are blockchain based. Well, it's kind of a way to invest in the artists too, right? So basically like, um, you know, what, what was Picasso's early art sold for? Like you, you didn't have uh, any any fame, or you, you wasn't well known, so probably very little. But what were his later pieces sold for, right? So like, if you invested in Picasso art uh, in the early stages of his career, wow, what a return! That's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And and we see this in the kind of crypto art world, which is probably about I would estimate it's 
and Andrew, maybe you, maybe you know more, more statistics on this, but I would estimate about like 5,000 to 10,000 people who are um, identifying as, um, you know, as, as crypto art kind of creators. Um, and what you see is that they get like really encouraged when they, when they find out that they can actually make money from their work. Um, one of the, you know, I run first edition.xyz, which is a digital art gallery. And one of the first artists um, that we featured in the gallery is called O Savage. This is a gentleman who's a, um, an immigrant from Africa. He, lived in, he lives in Dallas. Um, his job is to, is to drive, uh, uh, you know, um, Jesus, he, he's like an ambulance driver, right? But his passion is to make art on his phone. And he uses all of these different apps and iOS um, Photoshop and, and, and different like glitch apps to like put together different pieces of art. We put a, we put together a virtual art opening for him in crypto voxels and he sold a piece for, I think it was about $350. He absolutely couldn't believe it. It was, you know, an amount of money that was um, significant to him and he was encouraged and continued making art in the space. So how much room is there? for these artists, right? Like, is, is this kind of like a, a professional sports uh, type of environment where just the top 1% are going to be able to actually turn this into a job? Or is this something closer to the, the rise of streaming where everyone wants to be a streamer and everyone can, like a, a decent number of people can generate a living off of, of streaming? Like, what, what is the like total addressable market that you guys think about when you think about this type of, of uh, revenue generating uh, platform. I, I think it. I think it gets democratized. Like, like my mental model, and this is not just NFTs. I think this is um, kind of media broadly, right? We used to be in a world where we had these like very few, uh, but very famous people. Like, if you think about Michael Jackson's fame, um, you know, Michael Jackson was someone that at the height of his career was known in like every continent of the planet. You could you could literally go anywhere and, and show anyone a picture of Michael Jackson and they know exactly who he is. Um, so there were like fewer influencers and their influencer influence was very, very high. And where, what happened was that with the invention of the internet, we've sort of sped up um, information, right? We, we've sped up distribution. And I think the net effect of that has been that we now have many, many more influencers but those influencers are smaller in the sense that they serve kind of smaller audiences or more niche audiences or more specialized audiences. And of course, like the example of that is, you know, YouTube, the example of that is podcasting. And I think in the same way, we can apply that principle to, uh, to, these, to these marketplaces for, for digital content. I think we will have, you know, this curve kind of flattened out a bit and there'll still be you know, extremely famous, like crypto artists, we have that today. Mm, but there will be this like much broader opportunity for someone to come in and find a niche and a set of people that they serve and who are interested in, in, in their creative process and their work um, and have still the opportunity to make a sustainable income. So I think that's very interesting. Yeah, if, if, if I could kind of go off that a little bit. So I, I think that the total addressable market here within the NFT space is just absolutely massive because what I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, we're essentially going to make a mirror world of our physical world. And so there are so many jobs that exist are going to kind of be ported to the metaverse, so to speak, 
and so many metaverse native jobs will be completely created that we don't even know what the, you know they didn't even exist before. Like crypto artists was not really a job before this, and I, th- I think that we're really entering the, the kind of the age of the creator because before we had you know uh, the, the analogy that I like to use is that before the traditional crypto uh, sorry traditional art galleries they kind of controlled the media rails and the financial rails of an artist's kind of life, right? They, they you know, had all the connections to the magazines. They, they had, uh, you know, they took 50% of the commission from the sales and they knew all the collectors. So with the internet, the, the creators of this stuff could suddenly now um, control their own media. So if I'm an artist, I can have an Instagram, I can have a Facebook, and I can build my own audience to gather my own media and get my own kind of fans. But it still usually would have to be sold through a gallery. So there's still that 50% commission and still, you know, they had all the contacts. Now with NFTs, the creator has the media side because of the internet. And they also have the financial rails in their power because of because of the blockchain, right? And so now you have access to a uh, the, the the distribution of the internet, which is you know twenty four seven world worldwide, billions of people. Plus you have the, the you know financial power of Ethereum, which is a twenty four seven global uncensorable financial system, right? So so that's in, just absolutely incredible. And I think that the yeah we're really kind of in, yeah as I said before the age of the creator. And what, what's also interesting is that you know the early web. I guess actually the web we're in now, I suppose it was really about, as Jake mentioned, communication, you know, like blogging, podcast, video, kind of, yeah, really, really communication skills. But now with NFTs that we're actually able to create digital things, it's all about the builder. So it's like, if you're, if you're an artist, if you're like a 3d CAD designer, if you're, um, you know, I, I don't know, artisans of all types. Right. And so we're seeing that this next wave of creators are going to, you know, inhabit virtual worlds or create beautiful pieces of crypto art or whatever. And uh, you'll have people building, you know, there's people today in like worlds of crypto voxels that are being paid thousands and thousands of dollars per each build that they create. And so we're seeing all these jobs uh, be created that didn't exist. And so I think the total addressable market for this is just just ridiculous. What's, what's super cool about this, of course, is when we digitize things like digitizing money with uh, Ether and DAI and Bitcoin, then it also becomes uh, programmable. Right, so that's uh, something that that can't happen in the physical world, the meat space world of you know physical collectibles. And when we make stuff programmable, particularly assets, it allows us to do some really cool things, almost like weird things. Jake, can you talk about some of the weird things that people are able to do with NFTs, particularly when you combine things like fractionalization and and other DeFi primitives with NFTs, what sort of weird combinations are we going to see? Yeah, so fra- fractionalization has been an interesting um, trend that's kind of already in the market in various ways. There's a project out today. It's called Arc.Gallery. Um, I don't know if folks have seen it, but basically um, the idea is um, you want to buy a CryptoPunk, but the CryptoPunk is too expensive. And so what you do is you find a bunch of friends and you crowdfund it, and then as soon as you have enough money, uh, you can go go ahead and click the buy button and, and purchase it, right? As a result, uh, people will own sort of fractions or shards of that of that work in proportion to the capital that they contributed. And so that's kind of an application of, I guess you would say, you know, decentralized crowdfunding to the idea of joint ownership in, in NFTs. I think it's an interesting. So, yeah. Jake, this is the idea. Like back to uh, David's uh, uh, painting, or his, you know, his bedroom. And I'm really curious what that is, by the way, David. So maybe uh, you got to send some some screenshots of it after. 
but like I could own a piece of that, right? We could take that NFT item, that painting and share the ownership. He could give some to me. He could give some to you, Jake. He could give some to Andrew and we could all own a share of that. That's what you're talking about with fractionalization, right? That's right. And and what uh, in practice, the way that it looks like today is basically you're taking an ERC-721 non-fungible token on Ethereum and you're fractionalizing it into an ERC-20 fungible token on Ethereum. So you will own like shares and you know, and whatever the NFT represents. But because it's an ERC-20, um, it's able to use all of the existing, you know, trading and liquidity and DeFi infrastructure um, that already exists on Ethereum and is able to deal with fungible tokens. So you could put it on Uniswap and start trading it, get a market price you for it. You can put it on Uniswap. And so this kind of, there's a few things to talk about here. Like maybe let's go to kind of the liquidity, right? So one you know, one thing about non-fungible tokens is the complexity of pricing them, right? Because every single non-fungible has its own sort of unique character, unique value, unique set of people who, who, um, who appreciate and value it. And so unlike fungible tokens, the class of non-fungible tokens has always been a more illiquid asset class. Now in blockchain, we have this amazing set of tools that allows us to try to solve problems like that and say, you know, how do we uh, make these things more liquid? And fractionalization has been exactly one of those um, methodologies, right? It's like if you have something that's uh, non-fungible and a liquid, you take it, you fractionalize it, you put it on Uniswap, and then maybe you can develop a market there over time and, and actually create liquidity in this thing. There's also, for me, there's kind of a philosophical question here because, you know, there is a nuanced differences between owning a crypto kitty like by yourself and then owning a crypto kitty in conjunction with, I don't know, 200 other people. Right. And, you know, when you have direct sort of bearer asset kind of ownership, as we talked about before, um, you can very quickly make decisions like I can transfer this crypto kitty, I could sell it, I could lend it, I could do something with it, I can, I can, um, you know, throw it away, whatever it is. But when you are a shareholder in a crypto kitty, things get a little bit more complicated because now um, it's not just that you can make that decision unilaterally. Um, you need to make that decision in conjunction with the other owners, and so fractionalization of NFTs actually motivates decentralized governance and governance systems, which is a totally different area of blockchain. Um, but, but, you know, in my mind, some of the questions there are like, and Andrew, maybe you have, you have thoughts on this as well. Um, you know, is fractionalizing something actually making it a little bit less valuable because those fundamental transactions, the ability to move, to sell, to, to lend are now subject to this kind of onerous governance process. Yeah, I, I mean, we're at a stage right now that is so early that in my mind, I'm all about, hey, let's just experiment. Let's let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. And so, um, I, you know, me personally, I kind of believe that uh, I would like to own my full NFT, but I, I definitely have some shards of different NFTs and I've definitely experimented and I think it's very cool. I can see it being a, a huge use case. Um, but, but, you know, personally, I like to own. But in, in going off this kind of fractionalization concept, there's a platform called Async Art, which makes, uh, you know, they mint NFT art from these incredible artists. And what's cool about it is that each piece of art is can be made up of multiple NFTs. So, um, for example, if I 
there's a picture of like a sailboat and it's sailing in the sea and it's sunny out. Um, I can own the masterpiece, which has the, the main pieces of, of this art piece, you know, the imagery of it. And then someone could own what's called a layer. So it's a secondary piece. And let's say the layer is, is titled, you know, backgrounds, uh, background piece or whatever. And so I, and I have two options for this layer because the artist has created two options. The artist can make whatever they want. It's fully customizable. But so I can change it from sunny or I can change it to stormy, right? And whenever I want, because I'm the owner of that layer, right? So, so even though the person has the masterpiece, then the, the actual piece will, will be changed online. So whoever's viewing it will see that change reflected. And so that's really, really interesting where we're seeing um, these NFT pieces be kind of built on top of each other, like little Lego blocks, and that in, uh, different people can own different aspects and actually change the piece in real time. I think that's re really, really exciting. It, it seems like what you guys are also saying is that like as the DeFi space grows, all of the things will be that DeFi builds will be composable with this whole NFT asset space. And they're going to kind of grow together. Uh, which is which is super cool on the same rails. But I, I want to ask the the question of uh, about mainstream appeal. So um, some people thought NFTs were going to take off uh, quicker than they have, right? In a lot of ways, there's been tremendous progress. Andrew, you mentioned um, you, you wrote a blog post in Bankless how we hit a hundred million in NFT sales uh, back in July. So it's a hundred million. That's you know not too shabby, I would say, but. Uh, like it also at the same time hasn't caught on as quickly as some might have hoped. So for example, when are we going to see uh, a game studio like Epic incorporate NFTs into a major game like Fortnite? I mean, that hasn't happened. What has to happen for something like that to happen? When are we going to see a celebrity like Kanye West release some exclusive Yeezy type product on crypto rails? Why hasn't that happened yet? Andrew, maybe we'll start with you on why some of these things haven't happened and why NFTs haven't gone mainstream yet, what we're missing. Yeah. On my podcast, I ask everyone, what is the biggest barrier to adoption in the NFT space? And the answer that comes up every single time is just the kind of the UI and usability and having to deal with MetaMask and all the kind of traditional crypto you know, barriers, right? I, I think someone said MetaMask is like the fox keeping out any kind of normal, you know, MetaMask being the fox. Uh, keeping out any normal people from entering the NFT ecosystem. It's kind of like that barrier. And I, I think once we can get over that initial hurdle of people being able to um, just buy NFTs with like a credit card, and, and there are a lot of people working on that, but, you know, buy a credit card or, or just with a simple bank transaction and stuff like that, um, or, you know, being able to easily acquire Ethereum and or acquire DAI and purchase with that. Once we go over that big barrier, then I, I feel like then the, the whole space will be be totally opened up because, just by virtue of being games or game-like things, NFTs are way more, um, they're way more appealing in my mind than traditional crypto. Because, you know, again, it goes back to when I'm talking to my mother about Bitcoin, she's like, I don't understand. And I'm saying like, down with the banks, you know, the Fed. And, and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I, but I can tell her, I can say, <laughs> hey, you know, I play this video game and I can actually earn money from these in-game items that I have. And she's like, oh, I get that, right? And so I don't need to tell her about all the aspects of why you know, Bitcoin's great, blockchain's great. I'm just like, hey, I can play a video game and I can earn money. And so that has absolutely massive appeal. And it, that's people that play video games are generally younger. And so you already have this like great portion of the population that's like primed to adopt NFTs. We just need to make it easier to get in. But once they do, I feel like it's going to be, it's going to be just a, an absurd, absurd situation. It's absurd in a good way. 
And we've already seen like the first project to try and leverage this, right? Like Gods Unchained. I, I love that game. And I used to play Hearthstone. I never really got into Magic the Gathering, but Gods Unchained is a fantastic game that really doesn't require too much uh, crypto Ethereum DeFi experiment, ex experience to really be able to have fun with. And they are leveraging NFTs in exactly the way that you would expect them to, to their fullest. Yeah, no, exactly. Gods Unchained is a great example because I've never played a trading card game in my life. I didn't even like really understand the concept. And I started playing Gods Unchained and I loved it. And I wasn't exposed to crypto and, you know, there's crypto on the back end. And I thought that was an amazing user experience and I thought it was great. But what, you know, what we saw was that the actual trading of the assets was kind of hurt by the, the gas price. And that's kind of why it's, you know, kind of diminished in use of, of you know, recently because, you know, if you're changing a, or trading a, a card that costs a dollar, and it costs you a couple bucks to send it, you know, that's going to hurt. But again, it goes back to fixing these these kind of traditional issues that we have in, in traditional crypto. And once we get that that done, then we'll, I think we'll see much more more players into the space. And and going off of the, you mentioned the AAA studio, when we're going to see that. I think from what I've heard, um, there are a number of really big time, you know, traditional studios that are working on uh, games that utilize NFTs, but their number one hesitancy, and this is what I've, I've experienced speaking to a lot of these people, is is ethereum and the gas price and so they're trying to figure out okay you know are there layer two solutions can we go to a different chain or you know kind of what's the, what's the issue here and um if, for me you know it again just comes back to property rights so so as long as the game studios are right, choosing you know a chain that's that's strong and, and usable then then i'm happy I mean, can you imagine like Gen Z playing Fortnite, buying skins, buying items, all of these things, and then being able to trade them on like the open finance permissionless layer of DeFi? Like <laughs> to me, that, that that's kind of a, an explosive combination. Like it's going to happen at some point. It totally seems inevitable once we start to unleash this, this tech stack. But what about you, Jake? What do you think? So Andrew says uh, UX is the bottleneck here. Uh, do you share that view? I actually have a really interesting data point on that. And so if you, there's a very interesting experiment going on on the part of Dapper Labs and NBA Top Shot. And for anyone who hasn't heard about what that is, it's basically, um, you know, Dapper Labs made a partnership with the NBA and they took a bunch of highlights and, um, and great like NBA basketball moments and essentially tokenized them as NFTs. These are videos. And what you do is you buy kind of collector packs. They, it's sort of like baseball cards, right? They come with a random assortment, but it's totally digital. Uh, the website's called nbatopshot.com if you want to take a look at it. But essentially, the experiment that they performed is to say, look, you know, we really want to go out to basketball fans. The intersection of basketball fans and, and blockchain fans uh, are is pretty low. And so we really want to make this one of the best like consumer mainstream experiences that we possibly can. And a lot of people were nervous, right? Because, you know, we're sort of going to try to hide the value propositions of blockchain here. We're going to hide kind of the, the complexity, but we're also, we also might not get through that, that these things have the value propositions that, that these liquid, you know, tradable, transferable assets have. And the early, uh, you know, the early results are actually really encouraging. Like, People who are basketball fans, they absolutely love uh, Top Shot, and the user experience that that NBA Top Shot has created for them has has enabled them to to come into the system, to use it, to collect the stuff, and and to do it like through a credit card. Now, at some point, 
if those users want to get a little bit more sophisticated and actually learn a little bit of the benefits of the blockchain underneath and maybe own some digital assets on, on chain, maybe trade these things on chain, they're going to have an opportunity to do that. But the fact that we, you know, we were able to close, um, you know, a bunch of these like mainstreamers is extremely encouraging. So let's uh, wrap up this episode with some predictions. Uh, what is going to be the thing that breaks the news cycle next? Like what, what's the big thing that everyone gets hyped up about in like the next three months? And then uh, what's going to be the next big thing in like nine, 12, 15 months? I think like NFT space has been um, maturing and it's been around for a couple of years now. I mean, if you think about the first NFTs that came out, those were really um, maybe like rare Pepe's on, on Counterparty back in 2015. So, so to be honest, we're about five years in. But only, I would say, this year have companies in the space started to actually get proper attention from investors. And investors are coming around and actually starting to position in the NFT space and, 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 uh, and make investments. Um, you know, prior to this year, I would say OpenSea was probably the, you know, the company that kind of received the most serious attention from venture capital and crypto funds. Um, but this year, uh, you see Collaborative Fund publishing uh, their thesis on digital art and, and super rare. Uh, you see CoinFund's thesis on, uh, on NFTs and Rarible. Um, you know, you guys mentioned async a few times. I'm actually uh, an angel investor there and, and really, really love what they're doing. Um, and what I think is going to happen in the next three months is that you'll start to see more and more funding rounds around these companies. And you'll see a lot more competition in the areas of you know, issuance platforms for NFTs, um, marketplaces, and then this exciting area of like NFT times DeFi. Like how do we treat NFTs as, a, as an asset class? On a, on a longer time frame, um, what, whatever you said, 18 months, um, I'm going to make a bold prediction. And I, I might be wrong, but I think at some point the NFT space will actually outstrip DeFi in terms of volume. Wow. Wow. <laughs> bold, bold prediction. <laughs> How do we calculate that? Because the NFT world is so much more nebulous. Like Uniswap is this one central place where a bunch of you know assets can get exchanged and we can see that volume. How, how are you thinking that we'll actually be able to measure the growth of the NFT ecosystem? We're measuring it on chain today. If you guys go to Dune Analytics, um, there are a bunch of dashboards. Um, we, we, we probably should, should consolidate them a little bit more as, as new platforms come in. But, but from my perspective, I think that looks like uh, we, we sum up the the main marketplaces, those would be, you know, OpenSea, Super Rare, Rarible, Maker's Place, um, Known Origin, Mintbase, all these guys. And that will give us a, a really nice picture of um, the GMV, the gross marketplace volume of NFT sales. Um, and, you know, we can compare that to to activities in, in, in DeFi. And, and I agree, it's not, it's not going to be like, apples to apples exactly, but it will give us a sense of like how many people are operating in, um, you know, in, in, in the NFT world versus the DeFi world, how many wallets are operating, you know, how much sales are, are going on or how much capital is flowing through the system. So there are ways of, you know, comparing those things um, productively. But you think the metric is going to be total volume 
right? So like Andrew put out the post on Bankless about 100 million NFTs have been sold. You think more NFTs are going to be sold in terms of total value, in terms of total volume than, you know, DeFi type of assets. Is that I, right? So like broadly, I think it's about attention, right? I think that um, DeFi is amazing. I'm a technologist. I'm, a, I'm an investor. Like I love quantitative finance. I love yield farming, right? But it's it's not as this is not a set of topics that is broadly accessible to people. I think that's also changing. I think young people are are much more financially. Set. But we're all we're all finance geeks who are into that a little yeah. bit, right? But what I'm saying is, the NFT broad spectrum is so broad hmm. and so much more understandable to mainstream users that I think once like early mainstream adoption starts getting going in earnest, you'll just see like a lot of affinity there in that space. Yeah, I would have to say for myself, short term, the headlines will probably be more high crypto art sales. You know, we, we normally see sales of $20,000. And, you know, a few months back, we had the record of $55,000. And now yesterday, we had the $101,000 one. So I think the next few months, we'll just continue to see great sales on the crypto art side. And then six to 12 months out, I guess I would say the headlines will be more focused on these different NFT virtual worlds or games or platforms that are launching their own native tokens, kind of DeFi style. And those will be really, really interesting because they're not going to be uh, the, the kind of incentive mechanics used to farm those tokens, I guess, will, will be very interesting because you know maybe a virtual world will, will require that you build and then each each place that you build, you get you know 100 tokens or uh, maybe this game will require that you battle your axes together or, or whatnot. So um, that's going to be really exciting to watch. And uh, yeah, I mean, to, to go with, with what Jake said, I, I'm a strong believer that NFTs will become larger than, than crypto, like not even DeFi, just larger than crypto. And, and the reason being is that, um, you know, my thesis is that NFTs enable a metaverse. And when we're talking about a metaverse, I, I really mean that I do believe the majority of the world's population will be living inside or spending most of their time inside virtual environments. So crypto is, you know, going to radically transform finance and, and value and money itself. And, but that'll be, the, that'll be the money that is used in the metaverse. NFTs will make up every single thing that is inside the metaverse, your, your virtual home, your virtual couch, your virtual pet, whatever. And so it's, it's really the money versus the actual stuff that inhabits this place. And, and that's kind of, my, kind of my thoughts. Shit, Ryan, are we focusing in on the wrong thing about crypto? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So Bankless has just uh, pivoted to NFT only podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, know that I mean it's super bullish. Um, so how soon to a trillion, Andrew? So you know we just hit 100 million. Like, how, how many years is this process going to take to tra- to to transition into the metaverse? How soon until a trillion in volume? Of NFTs sold, yeah. yeah. You know, I would say, you know, I'm just purely guesstimating here, but I gotta say, probably eight to ten years. You know, I, it, it's gonna take because you know back back in 2017, I thought, okay, everyone's gonna be using Bitcoin by 2018, right? That was kind of my thought process. And then and you, you go through and you're like, wait a second, well, what's going on here? Why, why does no one agree with me? Um, but uh, yeah, in all honesty, it's got to be around eight to ten years. And kind of the metaverse vision that I'm talking about is you know 50 years out, so um, it, it's a much longer time frame, but. Yeah, I'd say one trill in 10 years. One trillion in total NFT sales, mm-hmm. right? Not twenty, not $1 trillion in like 24-hour volume, right? Total, total sales. sales. I mean, you're, you're much more into the weeds than I am, but I feel like that that could happen a lot sooner than that. I, I hope so. I just don't. I've just been disappointed so many times about 
um, why mm-hmm. the world is not more involved in Bitcoin, why the world is not more involved in Ethereum. Like, you know, because I, I see it so clearly and because I'm and obviously I'm super bullish on it. So I'm like, if, if I and myself and so many other people see, see the promise of this stuff, why has it not been adopted sooner? And I think it just takes a lot. It takes a lot of people to, uh, it's a huge mental leap for them to kind of get involved. And so um, to, to be on the conservative side, I would say, you know, 10 years, but obviously I hope it's, you know, tomorrow, but we're going gonna... to. Well, you know, it's like the past 40 years of humanity has been largely the transition, the um, s- slow, gradual transition in some ways of like humanity from the analog into the digital. And that's what this is. It's, but, but now it's with uh, scarce exactly. goods, it's with scarce assets. Uh, transitioning into the into the metaverse, so yeah, it, it it could happen in waves. It could definitely take um, you know decades to play out as well fully. It's certainly going to be interesting to watch, guys. This has been a super thorough guide to NFTs. It's exactly what we were hoping for, uh, and I think the Bankless community is going to get a lot out of this. Are there any specific projects, lastly, that that you guys can name that we uh, we should be you know looking out for? So Avagachi has just released something kind of interesting. Um, meme is another sort of NFT meme based coin that's doing some interesting things. David mentioned Gods Unchained, um, but like who should we have on the show? Who should we be talking to? What projects are most interesting? If you could just quickly rattle some of them off, Jake. Absolutely. If you guys are interested in that niche of like NFT times DeFi, if that's attractive to to Bankless uh, listeners, um, check out NFTFI.com, NFTFI.com. This is a place where you can go and you can deposit an NFT and get a loan against this. This is one of the earliest sort of DeFi projects that uses NFTs as a first class citizen. Also, there's a company called Niftex. What they're basically doing is they're um, creating the ability to fractionalize ownership in different NFTs and then to pool shares of those NFTs together, you know, into an index that investors can easily invest uh, into without having to sit and like maybe evaluate every NFT artist one by one. Um, I mentioned Arc Gallery. If you are, um, you know, if if you like the idea of like co-owning art, check that out. Um, if you are a creator yourself, mint some. Uh, NFTs on Rarible, or maybe try a dynamic NFT on async.art. Um, and if you're just kind of getting started in blockchain and you're a basketball fan, you know, check out NBA Top Shot. Andrew, what, what would you add? Yeah, I, I think Jake did a great job there, but I would say I'm very, very excited about blockchain-based virtual worlds. And uh, I, I see them as kind of this these user-owned future social networks. And I would say... Uh, crypto voxels and Soundium space are, are the ones to check out. Crypto voxels and Soundium space. I've not heard of Soundium space. Sounds interesting, guys. Thank you so much for spending time on this topic. Um, we're definitely going to be doing more on Bankless about it, but it's been a pleasure to have you both. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Ryan and David. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Cheers. All right, guys. Action items today. This has been quite a lot to digest, but fortunately, we do have a lot written on the subject on the Bankless Substack newsletter. So we will include links to how to make money on digital art, how to make bank flipping crypto, how to make money in crypto gaming, including the article that I mentioned that Andrew had written about passing the 100 million mark. So you can start looking at NFTs that way as well. We'll also include all um, links to all of the projects that Jake and Andrew just mentioned. So you'll have that in the show notes too. 
Risks and disclaimers, guys, NFTs, DeFi assets in general, it's all risky. ETH is risky, crypto is risky in general. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.